Exodus chapter 1. We're going to have an introduction to Exodus with special reference to the Ten Commandments, and then we'll pick it up next week looking at what is forbidden in the Third Commandment. So we have been in Exodus on Sunday evening for the last 62 weeks, or rather the last 66 weeks. So we have moved, we're moving it to the morning starting this Sunday and Acts to the evening. Exodus chapter 1. Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, all his brothers, and all that generation. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to learn the names and to understand that it's not just the names of Jacob's family, but the name of God, the name of his house, his tabernacle, the name of his people. All these points of knowledge are here in this book of Exodus, the book of the knowledge of God. Help us to know you through this book. Reveal yourself to us, we beg, Father. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, if you have an English Bible before you, which probably all of you do, you will see the title of this book rendered as Exodus. And, of course, that title refers to the main plot event in the first 13, first 15 chapters of the book. The people of Israel are enslaved in Egypt, and God brings them out. Exodus is the Greek word for way out. So the book of Exodus, by this title, is primarily about getting out of Egypt. If you have a Hebrew Bible before you, you will see that this book is called Shemot, which is its first word in Hebrew. Just as uh, Latin documents issued by the Roman Catholic Church take as their title the first two words of the document, and just as your word processing software is set to automatically take the first four or five words of the document as the title, so in ancient times, people typically took the first words of the book as the title. So in Hebrew, the first word is, now these are the names, or Hebrew word shem means name, name, shemot is the plural, the names. So it's the book of Exodus by the English title, the book about getting out of Egypt. By the Hebrew title, it's the book of names, just as it's followed by later by the book of numbers, as we say in English. But if we think of this as the book of names, what is the most important name? In this book, it's not the names that it starts with, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. The most important name in the book is the name of God, which is revealed in chapter 3 when Moses says, What is your name? And God says, I am who I am. And that theme, who God is, the name of God, covers not just the first 15 chapters, but the whole book. Exodus uh, falls into Really, three parts, we could say. The first part is getting out of Egypt. That's through chapter 15. The second part is God revealing his law. 
16 through 24. And then the third part, 25 through 40, is all about building a tent. Now, most of us have set up tents at one time or another, but hardly anyone would want to devote 15 chapters to describing the setting up of a tent. Thus, a lot of people, when they read Exodus, read the first 15 chapters, get through the Red Sea crossing, the ten plagues, say, this is excitement, this is fun, and then they get to the description of the number of tent stakes, and they say, what is this? Why do we care about tent stakes? Why is there a description of every pole in this tent? Why do we have to hear about the rain covering and what color it was? How does 15 chapters, or rather, right, if there's 15 chapters on getting out of Egypt, there's 25 chapters on the tent. Why? The answer is that it's all tied together by the name of God. Exodus is the book of the knowledge of God. We know God as the Redeemer who brings Israel out of Egypt. We know God as the lawgiver who says, now that you're out of Egypt, here's how to live. And we know God as the dweller, the one who says, you're living in tents in the wilderness. I will live in a tent in the wilderness alongside you. Let me describe my tent to you so that you can build it for me. Thus, the material on the tent is not Moses getting carried away by his passion for Egyptian tent architecture. The material on the tent is part of the knowledge of God. How do you get to know somebody most quickly? You go in their home. And when you look around their home, you will learn a lot very quickly. That's why Exodus spends 15 chapters on getting out of Egypt, 10 chapters or so on the law, but 25 chapters on God's house because it's the book of the knowledge of God and Moses wants us to know who God is. That's brought into into relief in chapter 5 where that theme is announced so clearly. Chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Pharaoh went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. What does God say? Challenge accepted. Pharaoh, you don't know the Lord? Allow me to introduce myself. Here's a plague of frogs. Here's a plague of flies. Here's a plague of lice. Here's a plague of cattle disease. Here's a plague of darkness. Here's a plague where I strike down your son just as you have enslaved and murdered my son Israel. God introduces himself to Pharaoh in the ten plagues. So God has already introduced himself to Moses. In chapter 3, in the burning bush, God says, I am the self-feeding fire. I burn the bush, but I do not consume it. Or rather, I am in the bush, but the fire does not need fuel to burn. We've never seen a fire that doesn't need fuel. 
Think about the cost of energy. We're all wishing for one. But God shows himself as the self-feeding fire, the fire that is self-existent, that is in the bush as a flame of fire, but not burning up the bush. God doesn't need the bush. The bush needs God. So God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush. He reveals himself to Pharaoh in the plagues. And ultimately, in this story of the Exodus, he reveals himself to us as the God who saves his people. That's in chapter 6, stated so clearly in verse 7. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am Yahweh your God. Right? What will you do? You will know God. You will know what about him? You will know that he is Yahweh your God, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. You will know God as deliverer. You will know God as the Exodus God who delivers from slavery to Pharaoh. So Exodus is the book of the knowledge of God as God reveals himself to Moses, to Pharaoh, and to us. And first of all, he reveals himself as Savior. The God who delivers out of Egyptian bondage. I am Yahweh, your God, who brings you out. Now in our day, it's become popular to see that in political terms. God is a God who brings us out of earthly slavery. The Israelites were enslaved to Pharaoh. God brought them out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And so Exodus is read by liberation theology, as it calls itself, as a way to get out of political oppression. Here's how you can get rid of tyrannical government, a state that tries to control your life. Others read it as a roadmap for financial freedom or sexual freedom. Or something along these lines. Or even moral freedom. You no longer have to be bound to the law. You can do whatever you want. That's not the freedom that Exodus is about. Because look at where the narrative goes. God isn't content to simply slaughter all the taskmasters. And then say, alright Israel, you're free to go. Go create your own Egypt elsewhere where you become the masters and enslave others. The book doesn't move from slavery to freedom. And it is so important for us to recognize that. Those last 25 chapters about the tent, it's not a pleasure palace for the Israelites where they can be free to do whatever they want. It is a place for God to live with them. The book moves from slavery to worship. And that's the trajectory of salvation. Not slavery to freedom, understood as the right to go out and make your own decisions and be your own person. Not understood as libertarian freedom or psychological freedom. Rather, It's about deliverance from slavery into worship. God frees his people from the burdens of the Egyptians so that they can live in the most heavenly way possible here on earth. 
God frees his people from the burdens of the Egyptians so that they can worship him. And that's how the narrative, that's what the overall course of the book shows us. Is God brings them out of Egypt to the tabernacle for worship. Now there's a key moment in that story. How does God deliver? Is this deliverance free? And the answer is no. It costs something. It costs the blood of the Lamb. Chapter 12. I will pass through the land of Egypt, verse 12, on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am Yahweh. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God delivers his people. He reveals himself as the God of the Exodus, the God who brings you out of slavery for worship. But he shows how that's done. It's not done simply by God saying, let Pharaoh collapse and do a little pile of blood and guts. And it's not done by God just saying, well, you're free now. I'll do a little mind control trick on the Egyptians and they'll let you walk away. It'll be easy. I know this deliverance costs the blood of the lamb and the death of the firstborn. This is is a point that it's hard, I think, in our day for us to understand. We were watching the new Star Wars Obi-Wan series the other night. I don't Some of you may have watched it. Some of you probably haven't. But anyway, within this Star Wars world, there's this thing called the Force. Certain people can manipulate it to do whatever they want. And over the course of the Star Wars canon, the cost of using the Force continues to drop to the point where now it's free. And it makes the story seem pointless. Wait, I can do anything at any time with no cost to myself. So why does the hero have to go through all this pain and suffering exactly when he could just use the force to get out of any and every situation? It's a question that the filmmakers don't answer. But it's not a question that's ignored or neglected by God. God's deliverance is not free. Right? It's easy if you are in the position that Israel and Egypt is in, slaving for 430 years, to say, where's the deliverance? God, why don't you act? You could snap your fingers and get me out of here. And the text of Exodus tells us, no, God can't snap his fingers and get you out. Deliverance is costly. There is no free salvation. So yes, God's economy here on earth is one of scarcity. God can do anything. All things are possible for him, but the world he has set up is a world where everything has a price. Everything is a trade-off. 
God says, you can come out of Egypt, but it will be at the cost of the death of the lamb and the death of the firstborn. A foreshadowing, of course, of the final deliverance in the death of Jesus Christ, who is the lamb of God and the firstborn son of God. Israel couldn't come out of Egypt for nothing. They had to present a substitute that belonged to God, a costly substitute, a lamb, a firstborn. And that was the choice. You couldn't come out of Egypt for nothing. Either God would kill your firstborn or he would accept the substitute of a lamb. But every home in Egypt had either a firstborn die or a lamb die. Nobody escaped the angel of death for nothing. So God says, yes, this is who I am. I am the God who dwells in the bush. I am the self-feeding fire. I am the God who sends the plagues. I am the Lord who delivers. But my deliverance is costly. My deliverance requires the death of of the lamb, the death of the firstborn, the blood on the door. If you're not hiding under the blood, your blood will be spilled. God goes on to reveal himself. He brings his people out of Egypt. He leads them through the Red Sea in the greatest miracle of the Old Testament. He leads them on to Mount Sinai. And there he meets with them. And at Sinai, he reveals himself as ruler of his people. God is the God who saves by the blood of the Lamb, but once you're saved, that costly salvation then implies and demands a costly obedience. And God explains that costly obedience with the chapters of law giving from 16 to 24, and especially chapters 20 through 24 are all legal material. They're all laws showing that God rules his people. I saved you. I will let you live with me in this tent encampment. But in order for that to happen, here are the rules. Here's how saved people live. Here is what is required of those who have been brought out of slavery to Pharaoh. So that's what the Ten Commandments are about. They are a revelation of what is best for humanity. God says, I'm the original designer. Here's the user manual. Ten principles. Ten things. If you keep these ten, you will live long and prosper in the land. But not only do the Ten Commandments reveal what's best for humanity, they reveal what is important to deity. The Ten Commandments show God's Priorities, what he values, what he wants. The Ten Commandments are a revelation of God. It's important for us to see that they fit perfectly within the theme of the book of Exodus as the book of the knowledge of God. And right here, dead center in chapter 20 out of 40 chapters is the climax of God's revelation of himself in one sense. God reveals himself as ruler, as lawgiver, as the one who has the right to tell you, give your hired guy a day off. 
Don't look at your neighbor's wife that way. Be content with the money and animals you have. Stop opening your mouth and using my name lightly. And on and on and on. God gives these Ten Commandments to say, you want to know me? Here's who I am. Here's what I love. Here's what I hate. Here's how I react to those who challenge my dominion. The knowledge of God is very fully expressed in these Ten Commandments, which is why we're spending such a long time on them. We have at least two sermons on every commandment. Uh, That's the plan. So as I said, in the evening we've gotten through the third commandment, what's required, and we'll come back next week and look at what's forbidden in the third commandment. So the Ten Commandments are law. They're God's commands to us. We know that. That law is, has two sides. We can call them the ethical side and the religious side. Ethically, the law tells us what to do. Here is the norm for human behavior. Have no other gods. Remember the Sabbath day. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. But the commands are not just ethical. They are religious or spiritual. There are those who try to collapse religion into ethics. You say it doesn't matter what you believe, all that matters is what you do. Deeds, not creeds. A fancier way of saying that, taking that slogan, deeds, not creeds, is to say, it doesn't matter what you think, all that matters is what you do. It doesn't matter what you believe, all that matters is how you act. Be kind, be nice, be friends, don't hurt anyone, then you have done everything that anyone could ever want. My friends, the Ten Commandments are not simply ethical. They don't just tell us how to live. They are religious. They connect us to God. The commandments are all about a relationship with God, which is why the first five commandments all contain the same phrase. If you look at the commandments, you'll see that the same short phrase appears in each one of the five. What is that phrase? Yahweh, your God. Commandment one, I am Yahweh your God. Commandment two, I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God. Commandment three, you shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain. Commandment four, the seventh day is the Sabbath of Yahweh your God. Commandment five, honor your father and mother that your days may be long on the land which Yahweh your God is giving you. Why does God repeat in the first five commandments that he is Yahweh and that he is your God? The answer is that deeds are not enough. Law is not enough. That religious connection whereby God has become your God in Jesus Christ is built in to these commandments. So the law is not just ethical. Don't listen to anyone who says that what's most important is how you behave. What you think is secondary at best. It's not true. The Ten Commandments, though they are ethical, they do direct us in how to live, are fundamentally religious and tell us how to connect with God.
He is God, he is Yahweh, and he is our God. He belongs to us. That's who the Ten Commandments are for. They're for the people to whom God has shown himself as the Redeemer who redeems at the price of the blood of the firstborn. This is why, in a certain sense, the Ten Commandments are under attack. Most of you in here remember the big kerfluffle over the judge in Alabama who displayed the Ten Commandments in his courtroom 15 years ago or so. The world hates the Ten Commandments, and in a certain sense, the world will always hate them because they are premised on God being your God. And if God is not your God, if Yahweh is not your God, these commandments will not resonate with you. You won't want to obey them because in denying the religious dimension, you also end up denying the ethical dimension. The Ten Commandments don't rule you, or that is, you won't acknowledge them as binding on your behavior unless you acknowledge that Yahweh is your God. You have to be connected to Him as yours. So the Ten Commandments speak to us about God and they tell us fundamentally that he is our God and that he tells us what to do. He rules us. The climax of the book, though, the center of the book is the Ten Commandments, but the climax of the book is at the end when God comes to the tent and moves in. They don't just build the tent for those 15, 20 chapters no, I was saying that wrong earlier, wasn't I? 25 to 40 is not 25 chapters. It's 15 chapters. They build the tent for those 15 chapters and then God comes and dwells in the tent. That's the payoff. The payoff is not the moment when they come out of the Red Sea and step onto the shores of the Sinai Peninsula. Right? According to modern geography, they're still in Egypt at that point. No, the payoff comes at Sinai when they finish building the tent and God comes and lives in it. And thus the book of Exodus leaves us with that question. Is that what you live for? Do you live to be near God? Is the most important part of your life living with God? having him dwell with you. He literally came and lived in a tent next to his people in tents during the wilderness wanderings to show them, I am your God. I will not leave you. I will be here with you. You're camping in tents. I'm camping in a tent. So the book challenges us. Do you want to live near God? Because to live near God requires that you keep these Ten Commandments. That's the only kind of person God can live near, a holy person, a person who lives for him. The book also challenges us with another question. How is the knowledge of God best acquired? Do you get to know God best by watching a burning bush? By watching ten spectacular plagues? By watching Israel cross the Red Sea? By hearing the living voice of God speak from the top of Mount Sinai? Or does the book move 
past those things to a more settled state of affairs where you actually get to know God best by just living with him. He lives in the tent next to yours. Right? The book does not encourage us to think that the climax of Revelation is to see the burning bush, to see the Red Sea crossing, to see miracles and plagues and spectacular events. God can do those things, and those things do reveal Him. But the best way to get to know Him is not by watching Him split the sea. It's by living with Him week by week, year by year, for the course of the entirety of this life and on into eternity. That's why He didn't send Moses with a movie camera to exhaustively document all those spectacular things so that we could watch them over and over and say, this is how we know God. No, he takes the Exodus and he consolidates it into an institution called the tabernacle and a whole system, a whole way of life called the Levitical system that's described in the book of Leviticus. And he says, now you're going to continue on living in the land, my people, for the next 1,400 years. And living next to me in my tent and then in my temple will show you who I am. Yes, the book of Exodus has a lot of the extraordinary in it. But it ends, in a certain sense, with the domestication of God. That God comes and lives next to you as an ordinary neighbor. Of course, God is never ordinary. He's an extraordinary neighbor, but he's there. Seeing smoke and fire on Sinai is not the best way to know God. Living next to him in his tent is how we know God. You get to know God by worship in his presence. We also see from the tent that God wants to live with his people in a beautiful house of his design and their construction. Yet another maddening thing about the book of Exodus. Why so much on the tent? The answer is because Israel had to build every square inch of that tent. In the same way, Jesus is the great temple builder who promises to build his church. The church is his design, but he has drafted us to construct it for him. We build the church week by week by what we do here in worship and with each other the rest of the week. Jesus designed the church. He's the master builder but we are the materials out of which he builds it. Living stones in the temple. So Exodus is the book of the knowledge of God that tells us he saves, he rules, and he dwells. He rescues from Egypt, he gives us the law to rule us, and then he comes and lives with us and makes us into his temple. The book is not about gaining political freedom. The book is about finding freedom from sin by dwelling with God, obeying God, being saved by him from Egypt, from sin, from Satan, so that we can dwell in his house forever. If you're ready to move from slavery to worship, the book of Exodus is for you. Let's pray.
Father, we ask that you would help us to know you as the God who saves. That you would help us to know you as the self-feeding fire who plagued Egypt to bring his people out. That you would help us to know you as the God whose redemption is costly. Whose redemption can be achieved only at the cost of the Lamb's blood or the firstborn's blood. Father, help us to know you as the God of the commandments who gives us not just ethical rules, but a religious way of life that connects us to you as the lawgiver. Above all, Father, help us to know you as we live with you in your temple, in your tabernacle, week by week. We thank you that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Feed our hearts on these truths. Help us to know you in the power of your resurrection, the fellowship of your son's suffering, being conformed to his death, that we too might attain to the resurrection of the dead. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our risen Lord. Amen.